Would you please bow and pray with me? Lord God, you are indeed holy. There is no one like you. We know the answer to all those questions we just sang. You are high and lifted up, exalted over all things. You have exalted, as the Psalms tell us, above all things, your name and your word. You are holy. Your name is holy. Your word that we're about to jump into today is holy. Lord, we come before you today not because we are worthy of approaching such a holy God, but because Jesus is worthy, because you've revealed your glory in him. You've opened a way for us to come boldly before the throne of grace, to come boldly knowing that you will give grace to help in time of need. And it's all because of Christ, because of his work on the cross. So Lord, we do come now to behold you, to behold your glory, your holiness. And we thank you that you have revealed yourself, your glory to us in the person of your son, Jesus Christ. What a gift and a joy it is to gaze upon him, to learn from him, to listen to his words. So we pray now, God, that you would meet us, that you would speak to us, that we would behold you and come away changed. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. It probably sounds like a broken record, but I'm going to ask you to turn to Luke chapter 9 once again. Luke chapter 9 is a very long chapter, and we're not even to the end of it yet. As we study through Luke's gospel, we've come to a pivotal point in the book of Luke. And this study of Luke's gospel, as it is when we study all the gospels, is so helpful for us. I mean, all of scripture is helpful. All of scripture is profitable. But for us as followers of Jesus, we can really relate to the disciples. We too are seeking to follow Christ and to learn from him. It's part of what it means to be a disciple. It's to be a learner. We receive instruction from Jesus. And sometimes we receive correction from Jesus as well. And this process of learning, this process of instruction, all these things that happen as we follow Jesus, that's not just true for the 12. It's true for us as well. And, and in Luke's gospel, we find these disciples learning a number of important lessons from Jesus. They've learned an important lesson about dependency on Christ. They try to help this father and his son who is being afflicted by a demon, and they couldn't, and they had to be taught to depend on Christ. They've learned, as we saw last week, lessons about humility. As they argue about who's the greatest, Jesus defines true greatness for them. And in our text today, these disciples are going to learn an important lesson about mercy, a lesson about mercy. And our aim today is to follow in Jesus's footsteps and to learn with the 12 what it is that we need to know about Christ, what it is that we need to know about his mission so that we can be faithful as we follow him. So what we'll do this morning is try to observe these sort of four progressions in this short story. It's not so much an outline as a tracing the arc of the story. And then at the end, we'll draw out the timeless principle, the point that applies to us today. I'm going to start by reading the text, and then we'll jump into it together. Luke chapter 9, starting in verse 51. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set towards Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? 
But he turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. It's a short story, it's a short text. There's four progressions that we see here. And the first, as Luke opens up in verse 51, is the resolve of Jesus. He draws our attention to Jesus, first of all, that the days have drawn near for him to be taken up, and he set his face to go to Jerusalem. This is an important time marker, as Luke says, the days have drawn near for him to be taken up. This is a a time marker in the whole life and the whole ministry of Jesus Christ, and it's a hinge point in the narrative. Everything leading up to this in Luke's gospel has been building towards a destination, building towards something that will take place in Jerusalem as Jesus will be betrayed, he will be arrested, he will be condemned, he'll be scourged, he'll be put to death. Then he would be buried, he would rise again, and he would ascend back into heaven. And Luke points us to this hinge and says, the days have drawn near for him to be taken up. You see, everything before this has been building towards this moment, and the disciples have been learning some important lessons. Specifically, they've needed to learn who Jesus was. In the first several chapters of Luke, the question is, who is Jesus? Who is this man that even the winds and the waves obey him, the disciples ask? Who is this man who teaches with authority, not like the scribes? Even Jesus asks the disciples, who do men say that I am? Who do you say that I am? That is the question. And Jesus has demonstrated powerfully over and over again who he is, that he is the Messiah, that he is the divine son of God, who is the son of man, who comes to fulfill God's promises to bring salvation. Over and over again, Jesus has demonstrated his identity in multiple ways, and it's culminated in their confession. If you look back In verse 20, they said to him, or he said to them, who do you say that I am? And Peter answers, the Christ of God. Lesson learned. They got it. They see it. They believe that's who Jesus is. There's no other explanation for one who can feed thousands and raise the dead and and calm the storm, cast out demons. He is truly the Christ of God. And it's not just their confession. This really culminates in the Father's affirmation in verse 35. On the Mount of Transfiguration, Peter, James, and John hear a voice coming out of the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. Everything's been building to this climax of this is who Jesus is. And now that that's been made clear, the days have drawn near for him to be taken up. From this moment forward, everything is moving inevitably towards the cross towards his work of redemption. You see, Jesus is resolved. He set his face to go to Jerusalem. Very simply, this is God's sovereign plan unfolding. Jesus has a laser focus on the great task that the Father has given to him, a task that was planned in eternity past. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 10 speaks of God's plan, a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. It's because of Christ's work of redemption, his death, burial, and resurrection, that God's plan for redemption would be fulfilled. It's a plan set in eternity past. Paul mentions this plan again in Galatians 4.4, that when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. You see, Jesus is coming, Jesus' birth, and also Jesus' work of redemption in Jerusalem was all part of God's sovereign plan that was, that was established in eternity past. 
Peter, preaching in Acts chapter 2, verse 23, says, This Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Jesus sets his face to go to Jerusalem because this has been the plan from eternity past. This plan was prophesied in the Old Testament. Jesus is the seed of the woman mentioned in Genesis 3, who was destined to crush the head of the serpent. But in the process, it would bruise his heel. Jesus is the Messiah who would bring the blessing that was promised to Abraham in Genesis 12. He is the son of David, the righteous branch, the servant of the Lord mentioned by the prophets who was coming to fulfill these things. In Luke chapter 4, Jesus has already connected himself to these prophecies from the Old Testament. In Luke 4, 18, he quotes from the prophet Isaiah and says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news for the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He says in verse 21, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. It's a plan from eternity past that was prophesied by the Old Testament authors, and Jesus says, that's about me. And it was also something that Jesus himself had said was going to take place. In chapter 9, verse 22, look at what Jesus says. He told his disciples, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. He says, this must happen. This is necessary. This is why I came. We see it also in verse 31 of chapter 9. Again, on the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus is unveiled. His glory is radiating as he speaks with Moses and Elijah. And they appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, literally his exodus, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Jesus has a destiny and a destination in mind. He told his disciples again in verse 44, let these words sink into your ears. The son of man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. And now the time has come, Luke says. The time that was planned in eternity past, that was prophesied by the Old Testament prophets, a time that Jesus himself has spoken of. And now the time has come not just to talk about it, but to do it. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. This is the resolve of Jesus Christ. Luke refers to his face three times in this short text. Verse 51, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. Verse 52 in the Greek language, when it says he sent messengers ahead of him, it's literally before his face. And then again in verse 53, the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. He's underscoring this resolve of Jesus that he has a laser focus on, on fulfilling God's plan for him. He's committed. He's all in. Isaiah wrote about this astonishing resolve that the Messiah would have, that the Lord's servant would have. In Isaiah chapter 50, verse 6, speaking in a futuristic sense of what the servant of the Lord would say, it says, I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I did not hide my face from disgrace and spitting. But the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint. And I know that I shall not be put to shame. This is the resolve 
of Jesus Christ. He's headed to the cross. The author of Hebrews tells us that it was for the joy that was set before him that he endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. You see, Jesus knows that suffering awaits. He knows about the betrayal and the slander and the abuse. He knows about the physical agony, and even worse, he knows the spiritual agony of drinking the cup of God's wrath. But this is why Jesus came. He came to bring salvation through his sacrifice, and he will be obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, as it says in Philippians 2. But as Jesus sets his face to go to Jerusalem, I find it fascinating that he doesn't leave the disciples behind. He doesn't say, all right, you've recognized that I'm the Messiah. You've confessed me to be the Christ. Okay, great. You guys can go home. I have some work to do. I'll see you later. No, he doesn't send them home. He doesn't dismiss them. He takes the disciples with him. He takes them with him on this journey as he sets his face to go to Jerusalem. Throughout the rest of Luke's gospel, every step will take them closer to the cross. And Jesus' journey to the cross must shape the lives of his followers. You see, he wants their heart to reflect his. Their mission must be aligned with his. Ministering for Christ will require ministering like Christ, which means they have more lessons to learn, and he's going to teach them as they are on their way to Jerusalem. That's the resolve of Jesus. But the second progression in this story, Luke points out the resolve of Jesus, but then secondly, he informs us about the refusal of the Samaritans. The refusal of the Samaritans in verse 52 and 53. He sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set towards Jerusalem. Jesus and his, his companions were traveling. They needed lodging. They were far from home. They needed a place to stay. They probably needed dinner. They needed to let someone... Uh, give them access to well water or some other source. So Jesus sent messengers ahead to secure lodging, to, to secure some provision for them. And this might sound strange to our ears to go into a, a town where you didn't know anybody and ask if you can stay the night. We probably wouldn't do that. I don't know, maybe some of you would, but most of us would not do that. But in Middle Eastern culture, this was common. Middle Eastern culture put a high emphasis in the first century on hospita hospitality. This was, this was a matter of honor and integrity that you were the kind of people that would welcome and receive travelers and help them on their way. And not only was this sort of hospitality customary, it would also have reflected an openness to Jesus and his message. Rabbis, these teachers, often traveled, and it was customary for people to, if they were interested in what that rabbi had to say, to welcome them and to house them and feed them in exchange for that rabbi spending some time teaching and sharing uh, his knowledge, his wisdom with them. And to be honest, Jesus had actually been in Samaria before. This wasn't his first time coming through this region. He had done much ministry in Samaria, so he was not a stranger. He was not unknown in this region. So this request of Jesus asking for a place to stay, rather than sound strange, we need to understand that this is a gracious gesture by Jesus. Because usually... The Jewish people avoided traveling through Samaria if they could help it. They would take the long way around. If they were journeying towards Jerusalem, coming from the north in Galilee to the south, 
they would go around Samaria. They would take the long way. They would actually have to cross the Jordan River two different times, which is not convenient or easy or even always safe. They would take those extra miles rather than go through this land because there were great tensions between the Jews and the Samaritans. If they did have to travel through Samaria, usually the Jewish people would try to bring their own food. So they didn't risk contamination and defilement by touching something that a Samaritan had, had, um, had put together. So this might sound petty to our ears. It sounds bigoted, but you need to understand the history behind the Jews and the Samaritans. If we go all the way back to the Old Testament, we know that in King David's day that Israel was a united nation. It was a nation at the height of its power and glory. And his son Solomon took it even further than David um, and ruled in his place. After Solomon, though, came Solomon's son named Rehoboam, and he was not as righteous as David. He was not a good leader. He was not as wise as his father Solomon. And under Rehoboam's rule, the nation split in two. You had 10 tribes in the north who had their capital in a city called Samaria. You had two tribes in the south. They became known as the kingdom of Judah. Their capital was in Jerusalem. And because of persistent idolatry in the northern 10 tribes, the nation Israel, the northern half, was eventually taken into exile. They were overthrown by the Assyrians, and many of them were deported. They were carried off into captivity. But there were some that were left behind. There were some that remained. And then what the Assyrians did was shipped in a bunch of other people from other places to resettle the land. And that remnant of the northern 10 tribes, they did not remain distinct from the Gentiles that moved in. They didn't remain distinct either ethnically or spiritually. They intermarried with the Gentile settlers and they absorbed their culture and absorbed their religion and they lost their distinctiveness as the people of God. The result of this intermarriage and this, this mixture of cultures was a people that were a mixed breed, both racially and spiritually. Now, years later, when many of the Jewish people returned and the land was, was, uh, was resettled and Israel was even reestablished as a united nation, worship resumed in Jerusalem, the capital of what had once been Judah. And there was a lot of tension between the returning Jewish people and the Samaritans, these people that were known for their loyalty to, to the capital there in Samaria. You see, the Samaritans had eventually dropped the worship of idols and they had, they had resumed worshiping Yahweh, but it was sort of a parallel and corrupted form of Yahweh worship. They worshiped Yahweh not in Jerusalem, but they worshiped on Mount Gerizim. They claimed that this was the site of true worship. And in order to justify this, they actually rejected the entire Old Testament except for the first five books of Moses. They ignored the prophets. They ignored the Psalms. They ignored everything except for Genesis through Deuteronomy. And they claimed that Gerizim was the site of true worship. But the returning Jewish people rebuilt the temple, and they rebuilt it in Jerusalem. And later, Herod came in and even expanded and updated that temple to become very, very impressive. So you might remember in John chapter 4, Jesus is talking to a Samaritan woman at the well, and she brings up this controversy. Should we worship here on this mountain, or should we worship in Jerusalem? So there's all of these tensions historically and spiritually and even racially between the Jews and the Samaritans. There's jealousy. There's rivalry. So for Jesus to come to a Samaritan village as a Jewish rabbi, to honor them with his presence, even though he's someone who's in high demand throughout the entire 
um, region there. That's a sign of the grace of Jesus' heart towards them. It shows his heart for outsiders. Luke makes pains to emphasize this all throughout his gospel, that Jesus doesn't just come for the Jews. The salvation is open to all who will believe, both Jews and Gentiles, Roman soldiers and prostitutes and tax collectors and the poor and the demonized and the diseased and the unclean. Jesus welcomes them all. He came to be a savior for all people. So despite the Samaritans' history of compromise, despite their corrupted worship, despite their rejection of the prophets, despite their jealousy and animosity towards the Jews, Jesus comes to them in compassion and love. He says, I'd like to stay with you and spend some time with you. He has no resentment or disdain for them, but Luke tells us, the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. Once again, just like earlier in Luke's gospel, there is no room for Jesus at the inn. It's like we've seen this before, right? There's no provision for Jesus here. There's no recognition for him here. There's no welcome. There's no hospitality. And it's not because they didn't have a place to stay. It's not because they didn't have enough supplies for these travelers. It's specifically because his face was set towards Jerusalem. You see, the prejudice here is mutual. It's not just the Jews who didn't like the Samaritans. The Samaritans didn't like the Jews either. You see, if Jesus had come to make the Samaritans his focus, they would have welcomed him. They would have said, great. If this, if this Messiah, this powerful rabbi, this teacher, this prophet, whoever he is, if he is denouncing the Jews and authorizing us as the true inheritors of the promise, if he's going to put Samaria on the map and basically say, you guys are on the right side of history and they're on the wrong side, they would have eagerly welcomed him in. But Jesus didn't agree with their agenda. His face was set towards Jerusalem. He was going there to the center of Jewish worship. And so these Samaritans had no use for him. Their rejection of Jesus' mission resulted in a rejection of Jesus himself. And this error is common today as well, isn't it? People are really excited about Jesus. If Jesus comes to be a mascot for your movement... If Jesus comes to help you accomplish your agenda, then people say, awesome, we love Jesus. We're all about Jesus. If he says the things we like to hear and does the things we want him to do, then we will eagerly welcome Jesus as our Messiah and King. But what happens when Jesus doesn't play by our rules? What happens when Jesus doesn't advance our agenda? He doesn't further our mission. Well, Jesus is very quickly pushed to the side. Luke has shown us the resolve of Jesus and the Samaritan's rejection. There's a third um, movement in this story. It's in verse 54. It's the request of the disciples. When the disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? James and John have a proposition. And that proposition, in a word, is judgment. These two brothers are part of Jesus' inner circle. James and John are brothers, the sons of Zebedee. They're from Galilee. They're fishermen. They had a nickname, the Sons of Thunder. And as you can see, it was well-earned. This seems to be right in keeping with their reputation. They want to see the whole town burn. They want to see the smoke rising up, kind of like that rebellious prophet Jonah in the Old Testament, who just wanted to see God's judgment fall on these wicked people. 
And there's actually some historical precedent for divine judgment like this. James and John aren't crazy. They're not coming up with something random. Read Genesis chapter 19. You see Sodom and Gomorrah destroyed by fire from heaven. Read Leviticus chapter 10. You see Nadab and Abihu, two rebellious priests who are consumed by fire that comes out of the tabernacle. It comes out of the most holy place and consumes them. And and especially, and perhaps most directly, we see a parallel in 2 Kings chapter 1. You don't have to turn there, but in 2 Kings chapter 1, you have the prophet Elijah, who is preaching against and condemning and opposing an apostate king of Israel. And this king is not too happy, and he wants to summon Elijah, so he sends 50 soldiers, a company of 50 men, to go and, and arrest Elijah and bring him in. And when these men are coming, Elijah calls down fire from heaven, and it consumes those 50 men. Well, the king is frustrated, and he says, well, I'm going to try again. He sends a second company of 50 men, and that company of 50 men is consumed again by fire from heaven. A third company of men is sent, and that leader goes, okay, I think I see what's going on here. And he cries out to Elijah. He says, please don't burn us up like the other guys. Will you come with us? And Elijah agrees. And that's probably the background for for this uh, request by James and John. In fact, if you have um, perhaps a King James or New King James Bible, you may see um, some language there that says, should we call down fire from heaven and consume them like Elijah did? That's probably a scribal note that eventually made it in from the margins into the text. That's why it's not included in the ESV. But that's the, the frame of mind that James and John had. They saw themselves as carrying the mantle of Elijah. We're here to represent God and pronounce his judgment on wicked people. And you know what? They had a point because the reaction of the village was wrong. They rejected the Messiah. And that did deserve judgment. Jesus is the Christ. He's the Son of God. And his kingdom is on its way. The disciples had confessed this great great truth. They believed in it. Yet the Samaritans are rejecting him. And so the disciples want to see judgment fall. They are eager to see this judgment. And they're happy to volunteer to be the trigger men. Notice they don't say, are you going to call down fire from heaven? They said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? They want to call it down themselves. And on the one hand, this does reveal great faith. They believe Jesus has the power and the authority to simply say the word and authorize them to do it. It also shows zeal for Christ. They are outraged that he is being dishonored like this. They're probably exhausted and hungry and tired. And this means that they're not going to be able to stay there tonight. But I I would presume that there might be a little bit of personal indignation mixed in. Because it's not just Jesus who's being rejected, it's them. It's not just Jesus who isn't being housed and fed, it's them. That may be the case. And more than likely, there's just a little bit of prejudice under the surface as well. They already don't like the Samaritans, and this gives them an excuse to see them pay. This is the request of the disciples, but it's followed up forth by the rebuke of Jesus. The rebuke of Jesus in verse 55, but he turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. Luke describes Jesus here as turning. Remember, his face is set towards Jerusalem. It's like Luke is describing Jesus as having already moved on. He's already on his way to the next town. But this request by James and John gets his attention, and he turns. 
and he sharply rebukes them. The word in the Greek language that's translated rebuke here is a very strong and intense word. It's usually described, uh, it's usually used to describe Jesus exercising demons, casting out demons. It has that sort of intensity. And he speaks to James and John this way. He rebukes them. Why? Why does Jesus rebuke them? If there's historical precedent for this judgment, if these people do actually deserve it, why does Jesus rebuke James and John? Well, first of all, this is not their role. This is not their role. In fact, Jesus has already given them instruction on what to do if they are rejected by a town. If you look back at the beginning of chapter 9, in verse 1 it says, He called the twelve together. He gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. And in verse 5, it said, he says, Wherever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. He doesn't say call down fire from heaven. He says shake the dust off your feet, leave them to the judgment of God. In God's timing, you just move on and go somewhere else. He's already told them what to do in situations like this. Apparently they've forgotten or they don't think that's a good idea. But Jesus has already given them instruction. Their role is not to call down and enact judgment because this is not the way Jesus does evangelism. Jesus is not like the Muslim jihadists who says, convert now or else I will kill you. That's not how Jesus does evangelism. Matthew eleven twenty eight. he says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. Jesus invites Jesus urges. He also warns. But he does not authorize his disciples to make converts by force. That's not how he does it. The kingdom of God will not be advanced through violence. Their role as disciples is not to trigger judgment. It's to preach the mercy of God. It's to preach the good news. They are not the same as Elijah. They have a different role. Elijah was God's prophet, God's representative, who could call down judgment from heaven. But they've been called as disciples of Jesus to be proclaimers of good news. They clearly don't yet understand that role. But secondly, and more importantly, the reason Jesus rebukes them is not just because this isn't their role and it's not the instruction he gave them, but secondly, this is contrary to Jesus' mission. This is contrary to Jesus' mission. He did not come at his first coming to bring judgment but to bring salvation. Again, some translations will include the scribal note that was probably not part of the original manuscript, but it nevertheless sounds a lot like what Jesus may have said. For instance, the New American Standard Bible includes in brackets that he says to them, you do not know what kind of spirit you are of, for the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. That sounds a lot like Jesus, doesn't it? It sounds a lot like what, a lot like what Jesus said in John 12, 47. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I will not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. Luke 19.10 says, The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. That's why he came. John 3.17, Jesus tells Nicodemus, God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. This is his mission. He came not to bring judgment, but to bring salvation. And the disciples apparently don't get it. There will be a time for judgment, but it's not today. The day of the Lord will come 
And it will be a time of God's wrath being poured out. But that will be at Jesus' second coming. That will be when he returns. That was not the purpose. That judgment was not the purpose of his first coming. At his first coming, all of his works, everything Jesus does, they're works of mercy. Think about all the things Jesus does. He provides healing. That's mercy. He provides deliverance. That's mercy. He offers forgiveness. That's mercy. He provides for people's needs. That's mercy. Even his cleansing of the temple when he turns over tables and drives out the tax collectors, that can be understood as an act of mercy. He says, my house is supposed to be a house of prayer for all people. You've made it a house of robbers. He drives out all of the people that are oppressing the poor so that, so that people can come in and actually pray and worship God. There's even mercy in that act. And his first coming obviously culminates in the ultimate act of mercy, his sacrificial death on the cross. This is the mission of Christ. He has his face set to go to Jerusalem so that he can die for sinners. He's on a mission of mercy and he rebukes them because they aren't on the same page with him. That's not why he came. Really, these disciples are making the same error as the Samaritans. Think about that. The Samaritans rejected Jesus because he wasn't furthering their agenda. These two disciples want Jesus to fulfill their agenda as well, rather than humbly submitting to his. So Jesus rebukes them, and he leads them to simply keep walking. They go on to another town. You see, Christ's mission of mercy is the mandate, and it's also the model. Christ's mission of mercy is to shape the mission of the disciples. And as this short story concludes, the main point becomes clear, and it's this. The main point is that following Jesus requires understanding and embracing his mission of mercy. If you're a follower of Jesus today, you need to understand and embrace Christ's mission of mercy, that he's a redeemer who comes to seek and to save the lost. Do you understand that mission? I think most of you probably do. The follow-up question is this. Is your heart aligned with that mission? Are you on the same page with Jesus? Are you on board with his agenda? Or do you want Jesus to fulfill your agenda? Are you looking for Jesus to sign off and, and maybe fund and subsidize your mission? Followers of Jesus must understand and embrace his mission of mercy. I suspect there might be some room for growth here in us. There always is, right? So I'd like to offer a few exhortations in closing that will help us apply this truth in our own lives. Exhortations to you, and the first is this. Number one, in response to this truth, consider his mercy to you. Consider his mercy to you. As we read this story and we see that Jesus is on a mission of mercy, what, how do we respond to that in faith and obedience? Well, consider his mercy to you. Consider what Christ has done for you. Consider the heart of God towards you. If there is a lack of mercy in your heart today, if there's a lack of evidence in your life that you're on the same page with Jesus, that your disposition is one of mercy towards those who deserve judgment, if there's any lack, nothing will stir up mercy more than a consideration of God's mercy towards you. Romans 11 verse 30 says, you were at one time disobedient to God, 
but now have received mercy. If you are a a Christian, if you've been saved, you are a recipient of unfathomable mercy. God has looked on you with compassion. He has not given you the judgment that you deserve. He has given you time. He has drawn you to himself. He has granted you forgiveness through the work of Christ, even though he could have called down fire from heaven on you and on me and on every other person who's ever walked the face of the earth except Jesus. Peter writes in 1 Peter 1, verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy. He has caused us to be born again, to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Paul writes in Ephesians 2, 4, that God, being rich in mercy, Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him, seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Do you have a sense of the greatness of God's mercy? Do you have a sense of the richness, the lavishness of God's mercy towards you? Does it stun you? Does it sober you? Does it comfort you? Only those who radically underestimate or tragically forget God's mercy will find it easy to withhold mercy from others. Consider God's mercy towards you. Considering God's mercy towards you will change your attitude not only towards the lost, but also towards other believers. I love what Charles Spurgeon preached years ago. He says, He who grows in grace remembers that he is but dust. And he therefore does not expect his fellow Christians to be anything more. He overlooks 10,000 of their faults because he knows his God overlooks 20,000 in his own case. He does not expect perfection in the creature and therefore is not disappointed when he does not find it. That's a disposition of mercy towards imperfect people because you're so aware of God's mercy towards you. Listen, if you've experienced God's mercy, then I want you to consider that mercy today. Consider that the same Jesus who told James and John not to call down fire from heaven on the Samaritans is the same Jesus that today prays on your behalf to the Father and argues on the basis of his shed blood that you should not be consumed. That he argues on the basis of his sacrificial death that you should not be condemned. He intercedes for you today. That's mercy. And friend, if you have not yet received God's mercy in the gospel, if you've not yet placed your faith and trust in Christ, then I hope that today you will consider your need for mercy. You see, Jesus not only had this focus of of bringing about salvation during his life on this earth, Jesus continues to provide that salvation today. Will you come to him? Come and receive his mercy. In God's mercy towards you, there is still time. The fact that you are breathing today, the fact that your heart is still pumping today, the fact that you can hear my voice today means God has not yet closed the door on the opportunity for you to come and receive his mercy. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 6, verse 2, Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. 
Today, Jesus offers you his mercy. But one day he will return, and at that point, the door will close. And the time for mercy, the mission of salvation, will be over, and the day of judgment will come. If you've never received the mercy of God in his son, Jesus Christ, this is your only hope. It's to receive Christ. It's to entrust yourself to him, to receive the gift that he that he procured for us at the cross. In his death, he absorbed the wrath of God. In shedding his blood, he paid the penalty for sin. In going into the grave, he defeated the death that we are all destined for. And it's only through faith in Christ that you can have eternal life. It's only through repenting of your sin and bowing your knee to Jesus that you can receive mercy. Don't miss that opportunity today. Luke 1, verse 50, as Zechariah sang in his song, his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. His mercy is for those who fear him, for those who submit to him and trust his promise and bow the knee. So the first response that we have to this truth that Christ's mission is one of mercy is we need to consider God's mercy towards us. And then secondly, conform to his merciful heart. That's what God wants from us today is that our hearts would be conformed to the image of Christ. In Luke 6, verse 36, as Jesus preached that sermon on the plain, he said, be merciful even as your father is merciful. God shows us great mercy and then he wants to form us and to conform us into the image of his son so that we become merciful like him. God wants our hearts to reflect his. This is the lesson the disciples were learning. That hadn't happened yet. Jesus' heart was one of mercy. His face is set to go to Jerusalem, and they want to call down judgment on Samaritans. That needed to change. And there needs to be some change in us as well. There ought to be a flavor of mercy about the body of Christ in the way that we interact with the world and in the way that we interact with each other. Paul writes in Colossians 3, 2, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts. That's that idea of mercy, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. This is something that's to be put on. It's something that's to be cultivated. It's a virtue that must be developed and brought to maturity in us, that we would become merciful like our God. James 3, 7 tells us the wisdom from above is, among other things, full of mercy. The more we become like Christ, the greater we grow in wisdom, the more merciful we will become. This doesn't mean we overlook false teaching. It doesn't mean that we ignore sin. It means that as we engage false teaching, it's marked by mercy. That's why Paul told Timothy that, that he ought to correct his opponents with the spirit of gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance. That's why in, in Jude, verse 22, it says, have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others, show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. When the church practices discipline, when it corrects error, when it chases after people that are trapped in their sin and tries to rescue them out, that is how we express mercy. So this merciful disposition doesn't mean that we tolerate error or that we overlook sin. It merely defines the disposition of our heart as we engage that. So as you consider God's mercy towards you, 
That ought to move us towards conformity to the image of Christ so that his mercy starts to show through us. So consider his mercy towards you and conform to his heart of mercy. And then third and finally, commit to his merciful mission. That's how we can respond to this truth today. If this is what Jesus is doing, if this is his mission, it ought to be ours. Commit to his merciful mission. Jesus died for Jews and Samaritans. And you know what? Before his ascension, he commissioned his disciples to take this message of mercy, the good news of the gospel, to take it to the nations. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus says, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. He commissioned his disciples to take the message of mercy to the Samaritans and to every nation, to every tribe and tongue. And it's awesome how we see later in Acts chapter 8 that John, one of these two disciples, one of the brothers, the sons of thunder that wanted to call down fire from heaven on the Samaritans, we find the apostle John ministering in Samaria. Acts 8 tells us that John went with Peter because the gospel was taking root and John and Peter together ministered to these believers, that John prayed for them, that John laid his hands on them. You have to wonder if perhaps it might have even been some people from this town, people that at one point had rejected Jesus, but in God's mercy had been brought to saving faith. You see, the apostles and those they trained, they took the gospel beyond the borders of Israel to the ends of the earth. And today, we're the ones who carry that same baton. And we must commit to this mission of mercy. We testify to the mercy of God. We invite sinners to come to Christ and receive his mercy. And as we go ahead of Jesus, as it were, like the disciples preparing the way, inviting people to receive Jesus, we too, just like the disciples, are going to be rejected by some. We're going to be mocked. We're going to be rejected. Our message is going to be refused. When that happens, we have a choice. Will we become angry and defiant? Will we become vengeful and vindictive? Will we desire to take revenge on those who have profaned the name of Christ and rejected us? Or will we have a heart of mercy that even prays for our enemies and desires to see them brought to faith in Jesus Christ? We preach a message of mercy and we must respond with mercy even to those that are hostile to Christ because we are to be committed to his merciful mission. Following Jesus requires understanding and embracing this mission of mercy. I hope that you will consider God's mercy to you today. You will seek to allow the Spirit's work to continue as he conforms you to the image of Christ and that you will embrace this message and this mission that we would learn like the disciples this important lesson the wonder of God's mercy towards us, that this mercy would shape us, and therefore that we would give ourselves to that mission. Would you pray with me to that end?